Welcome to the Inspiring Minds Podcast, hosted by Justin Starbird and presented by the Edison Awards. Listen as Justin talks with innovators and pioneers that are changing the world around us. True modern-day Thomas Edison's walking among us. Guests will answer the most difficult of questions facing startups, established brands, and folks with great ideas that are just getting started. Learn how these amazing innovators have gone from concept to commercialization and what it took to get there. Take notes as they share with Justin how they navigated through research, development, and in true Thomas Edison fashion, marketed and sold their newfound innovations. You're listening to the Inspiring Minds Podcast. Welcome back to this episode of Inspiring Minds. My name is Justin Starward, and today I have a good friend, both to myself and to the Edison Awards, on with, on with me. Serial entrepreneur, part owner, developer, and all-around awesome awesome guy, Ryan Fogelman. Ryan, thanks for joining me today. Nice to be here, Justin. How are you? Man, it's uh, too long since you and I talked and caught up. So um, I'm really, it's always exciting when we can um, create a professional reason to, to hang out and talk. Yeah, it's like when you're, when you do things that don't feel like work, it's not working. <laughs> I don't think you and I have worked for years then. I would 100% agree with you. I don't think I've ever worked a day in my life. As soon as, <laughs> as, soon as the things start to suck, we stop. <laughs> yeah, seriously, right? I move on and figure out a, a more innovative way to do something else. So yeah. I 100% agree with that mantra. Yeah, and um, you know, I've seen some of the stuff that you're working on, and um, it certainly doesn't seem like you know life is bad right now. I mean, I know that uh, COVID and you know, the current events have all hit us differently. You've had a couple of businesses that have um, you know, been affected by that, but you know, what are you working on right now? Um, right now, I'm really focused on Fire Rover, Cohatch, and Regrip. So I think you know, with COVID, I mean, like, as you can imagine, you know, it's, it's definitely changed the business model a little bit. Um, you know, with Cohatch, I mean, we did see a uh, decrease in our number of, uh, of our shared workers and obviously from an events and a meeting room spaces. But, you know, we, we have private offices that stayed consistent, stayed essential. And, you know, I think as everybody's kind of looking at, you know, what work looks like in the future, places like Cohatch where they can work one day, two days, have meetings, you know, um, are becoming a lot more, you know, I hate to use the word essential, but you know, their, uh, the interest level is high. So, you know, it's one of those that we, uh, we actually just announced a deal yesterday with, um, Ohio state university and, um, Apple. Uh, so they have a, uh, an innovation program and we are going to host it inside a former Aveda salon on high street that we're redoing. Mm -hmm. So it'll go, um, you know, we have 65 offices currently, uh, marketplace, makerspaces, and others that are located in neighborhoods, but you know that's gonna it's gonna take off, right? From a uh, you know from uh, not wanting to work in offices or um, you know businesses understanding that spending all that money on real estate doesn't have the value add that we once thought that it did. Yeah, so talk about you know just the uh, impetus of of Cohatch and and how you got started. We'll start you know talking a little bit about that real quick. Cause I'd love to hear more about this deal and what that's going to mean for both the university and for, for you, uh, and your development group. 
Yeah, I mean, so so we basically, I mean, I started my company, Conversion Development, in 2008. And I think, you know, similar to what you were saying, never wanted to work a day in my life. I mean, you know, I, I had worked in corporations, uh, AmericanGreetings.com, Accenture, um, you know, and a lot of these larger organizations. And in 2008, I basically decided that I only wanted to work with small and medium-sized businesses um, just because I didn't, you know, it, I, I didn't like the... I hate to call it the rat race, but you know, I didn't like the nine to five thing. Right. I mean, I, I you know, me, I work 24 seven, but I mean, you know, I also am a big on my family and I spend a ton of time with them, but you know, they're, I'm, I'm able to work from home. So what ended up happening in, in 2015, that's when we started uh, fire Rover. I was the first full-time employee or the first part-time full-time employee uh, for fire Rover. And then, um, I worked with a bunch of, of inventors in California with a product called the Regrip that had won an Edison Award as well as well as Fire Rover. And then I also started uh, Mesh Fitness, which is now Mesh Fit Club, but the same partners. We we were working on all these businesses, and what ended up happening was we wanted to. We had this extra space that was inside downtown Worthington, which is a really beautiful small town, like inside Columbus Metro. And we had this space that was like 8,000 square feet that was a warehouse, a former hardware store warehouse. And, you know, we, we basically, my partner's Matt Davis, he, he was talking to the owner of the building and she was like, no, you don't want that. It's an old warehouse. It's literally been a warehouse for hardware store for a hundred years. Um, so Matt goes in there and goes, wait a minute, like, let me see this thing. And he went in and looked around. And so, you know, we started to try to figure out with six partners, but we, we were trying to figure out what we could do with the space. At the same time, we wanted to, you know, each of the six partners was going to work from an office that was inside. And then, you know, we were going to try to make some money with some, you know, co-working or shared spaces. And, you know, the, the idea was that we would help small businesses or nonprofits as, you know, we could help them roadmap their businesses, right? Nothing formal, but just kind of a, you know, a clubhouse for, you know, six of us. And what ended up turning into, you know, we didn't, you know, we put over a million dollars into the first one, right? So, you know, we were like, we, we kind of got to make some money out of this. This isn't like just paying rent, right? So we turned it into Cohatch. And the idea was work where you love, love what you do, stay healthy. We had meeting rooms, event space. We had a podcast room, um, a large, you know, event space. And so we basically transformed this building that had, it was the old, um, it was the old town square, like the town theater. So literally my office was like built on a theater, like on the stage of the theater that had been there for well over a hundred years. Yep. So, you know, fast forward and, you know, we had a give wall and we were giving uh, nonprofit scholarships. And so it had this whole component of, you know, when you're working at home, you, you don't want to commute to co-work, right? The idea is, is that you want to be able to work in your bubble. Most of us, most of us, any urban city, you live, work, and play within, you know, 80% of the time is within your five-mile bubble. So our idea was, okay, we're going to open one cohatch in Worthington, and then we're going to open a bunch of walkable neighborhoods all around the city. And so then you'd have, you know, one co-working pass, and it would work for all these different locations, and it'd be convenient, and it would work. Yep. So we did our first one, did great. Um, we did our second one, which was a partnership with the city, and it was a, an underutilized asset. We took that, we put a makerspace in it as well. So we had an outdoor patio, 15 offices, and then we had a makerspace. 
and the makerspace had like seven different businesses that we were incubating. So one was a company called Portion, which is, you know, meal. Um, it was uh, delivered meals. One was a hair salon. Uh, one was a coffee roaster. And then we had 11th Candle, which is a nonprofit that we were, that we were helping that it, it, women, like human trafficking survivors were making candles. And we have a jewelry, um, you know, one of the, the head uh, um, clay jewelry makers that was training women who were incarcerated, you know, to, to have a skill when they got out. So like, you know, all of this kind of built and the CEO of Washington Prime Group came in, looked at it and really told us, he's like, I've gone East Coast and West Coast. I haven't seen this model anywhere work. People talk about it all the time, but, you know, so anyways, long story short, we ended up going to a mall. Um, so fast forward. That's now, the one I saw, we, right? That was the one I came out to see. Yep. Yeah. The one, the one at Polaris. So, yep. you know, we, we yep. took an old, went old pub, we took the kitchen out, we had 10 offices in there and event space and meeting rooms. And we're turning that into a, it, it was a meadery. We're turning it into a, a, a brewery. Yep. So now we have, you know, 20 locations under plan. Um, we have basically three in Indy, three in Cincy, three in Cleveland, um, that will, those, those will start opening in the next like two months. Um, we, you know, we, we took a, a small city is uh, Springfield, Ohio. It's, it was one of the wealthiest cities like a hundred years ago. And, you know, they had a market that we work with them and develop the market. So this market has 15 offices and co-working and all the different things, but it also has six different, um, six different, um, you know, marketplaces that you can, you know, get pizza or we, we, we did a deal with a company called TAC, which is uh, the abilities connections where you have basically physically challenged labor that's, that's growing hydroponic food and then cutting it and serving it to you. So you go in, you order a salad and it, it literally is all built around that supply chain. So, right. you know, and again, there's for-profit businesses, non-profit businesses, but really that's the kind of the impetus of all of it. Right. And, you know, again, in Columbus, we have what, 60,000, um, sorry, 60 uh, meeting rooms and, and event spaces. We're opening three more over the next two months. So, I mean, it's, it's been a fun ride. So for that, you know, um, how have you had to navigate, you know, current events for the last six months? So we ended up, we were considered essential because we were offices, right? So if, you know, we have private offices, I think we have 120 um, and, and, you know, we're, we're growing as we, as we keep opening these locations around the city, but the, um, so we had to stay open. Our community managers, we, we kept them employed and we, um, we didn't have them go into the office for about two months. And we started a program called Cohatch Delivers. And what that was, was we work with uh, restaurants, local restaurants like Vazo and uh, Chicken Salad Chick and a couple others. And then we work with some of our, um, you know, because we have a thousand members that are small businesses. So, you know, kind of like a, a community, um, like a chamber of commerce, right? I mean, we have that network. So we had a lot of our members and then all of our community managers were making phone calls or they were receiving phone calls for people who are in need. And, you know, we helped over 2000 people from getting meals, giving meals to healthcare providers or healthcare frontline workers. And then we also like our community managers went to target wore mass dropped off, you know, like essentials to, um, you know, to some of the at risk, uh, you know, anyone who was at risk was able to call us. So, you know, we kept them employed and then 
you know, now we are, when everything started opening back up, we have sanitization stations, everybody wears masks, we have social distancing. So, you know, we're doing kind of everything that we can to ensure that our locations are, you know, set. Um, I think like our, the gym that I was telling you about the fitness, like we, yeah. we really transformed the fitness and, and like we were just on the, uh, on channel 10 news, which is a local news station like showing because like so basically you walk in and you get tested like you know for you get your temperature checked and then you need to wear a mask until you go to a station we've developed all these like weightlifting station like rogue weightlifting stations so everybody has their own personal and then you um everybody gets their own like sanitizer and towels and all this stuff so we were just on the news for like what you can do in a gym from a pandemic perspective you know, to try to make it safe. Cause again, it's never a hundred percent safe, but you know, there's a lot of a lower risk people who are out there that still need services. And I mean, I think what we all know is not healthy to stay in your home. Right. I mean, right. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's been one of the, the biggest things right now. Uh, health officials are saying about, you know, the lack of, of uh, immunization uh, by, by being so isolated. Right. And that, that although we're in the midst of a bump now or something that, you know, it could get even worse. So, you know, it, it's, it's wild to think, uh, you know, of, of all those things and, and um, how, you know, how difficult they were one, nobody planned for it, obviously, but then to navigate as, as um, information became available and you guys having to run the business um, as it was going on. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, every business has been unique. Right. And I think that's, you know, everybody has their issues. I mean, you know, my sister, you know her, right? I mean, she had a, uh, you know, she, she has a company that does restaurants and hotels. So she's been, you know, hit particularly hard. So, I mean, I think restaurants and hotels, but I mean, between, we actually just opened up North High Brewery, which is a tap room um, inside Dublin, Ohio, where we're building off the back of, you know, like 30 offices. And we're, you know, we literally just opened the tap room. And when I tell you, I mean, even from a social distancing perspective, we have been busy from the day we opened. So, you know, again, I think everybody's kind of taking the risk. I mean, we're trying to make sure that there's no standing around the bars and all the different things, but you know, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely people are, are itching to go, you know, get out of their, their homes. And again, I mean, my feeling is, is that, you know, if you're high risk, I get it, you know, you need to take um, extra precautions. But I think, you know, with that being said, everybody needs to get out of their house. It's healthy from a mental perspective, you know, so. Yeah, no, obviously, obviously safely, you know. Absolutely. Well, speaking of, of getting out of your house and, and being active, um, you have a, a project that's kind of come on the heels of a previous Edison Award, you know, winner um, a, a few years back, um, the, the regrip. And, and uh, not only is that, uh, you know, uh, an activity uh, to be done outside, right, with the existing uh, product line that you have, but you're getting set to announce um, a, a new line that um, will be certain to have a dramatic impact on on athletics and a specific sport in general. Yeah, and we hope, right? I mean, so you know, I think so. So if we go back four years when we won, we won a bronze Edison Award in uh, consumer products. You know, and again, that was like a highlight, right? I mean. What had happened with Regrip, I had worked with two of the inventors out in California. They had built out their business, had done decently well, um, but really realized that. What's Regrip again, just to give give folks a a, a point of context? 
Yeah, so so regrip is so we own the patent on putting a rubber grip on any handle lever tool within seconds and with no mess. Right. So basically it's a rubber grip that you utilize. It's very simple and it's innovation, but basically it works the way that <clears throat> the way that you if for some reason you have a ring on your finger and you need to take it off with uh, with um, um, uh, like dental floss, right? Like it, yep. it, it, it circles inside and basically the in, inner core will, will eat at itself. And then the grip is made, it's a cold shrink technology. So, you know, instead of a heated grip or using adhesives or glues or all the different things that you would, it basically sucks on to whatever it, it gets a hold of. So, you know, we, I, <coughs> excuse me, I had that product um, sold to, or I had that, product brought to a company called uh, Chicago Aerosol, which has recently um, been sold, but it's still, it's a family owned business. They own Nakoma brands, mm -hmm. uh, Preval, Regrip and Endust. And we brought the, the Regrip out. It's done well, fast forward five years, you know, I mean, it, there's definitely been struggles. Um, we have a small, medium and a large ACE picked it up and put it in their planograms uh, starting last um, September. So, you know, that's been a really big win for us. And it's doing well, but during this entire time, and I think, you know, I, I know you and I discussed this, it was, we were trying to create a baseball back grip, right? Yeah. The idea of having an 11 inch grip that's made of rubber silicone that you could put over a bat and pull the inner out and it sucks right onto, onto the bat, you know, the metal, wood, whatever, um, we have been working on for four years, right? So we, we, we have a supplier that we, we go back and forth with the supplier We've been getting sample after sample. We've been working with uh, one of the large, you know, retailers, athletic retailers. And we finally, in November of last year, got it, right? Where like, you know, there were so many issues because the difference between a normal grip where you need a 20% shrink ratio, we needed a three to one shrink ratio. So imagine that you're stretching something like three inches and then it has to go down to like less than an inch and it has to hold tight on there. So, yeah. you know, it, it, it's definitely, it, it definitely was a lot harder than I ever thought that it should be. <laughs> you know what I right. mean? <laughs> and we spent a ton of time and a ton of money. And, you know, fortunately I've had good, good, good backers and we were ready to launch this of spring of this year. And of course COVID happens. Right. Right. And baseball season just, I mean, as you can see, they're still not playing yet. Right. So, which is wild. We finally, yeah. yeah, and we finally have this done. So, um, and of course, you know, the the retailer that we were going with, I mean, it, you know, they're they're pushing everything at least one year, right? But they're working from home and they don't have time to get, you know, so like new products are the last thing that's on their radar right now, right? I mean, yeah. they're worried about all the inventory they're sitting on from a baseball perspective when they couldn't sell it for you know, the first three months of baseball season. So what we're, what I'm doing is I'm, I, I'm doing a Kickstarter campaign because I want to prove, first of all, I want to get this to market, right? I want baseball players, everyone that I've ever showed has used it and loved it. So th there was always that one issue where it didn't install correctly. So that's where, you know, that's what we've been working on fixing. And so I'm going to, I'm doing a Kickstarter campaign that should launch in August. And, you know, the idea is if like bring it to the people, we're going to do a, a, a black, a white, and then a color that the people get to choose. 
And, you know, if it does well, we'll order it. If it doesn't do well, then, you know, I, I have my answer, right? I mean, it's tough sometimes being an entrepreneur. So, you know, you, you, you think the market will want something and, you know, you just got to sometimes test it, right? Well, I've, I've seen the, uh, the Instagram videos that you posted recently on that. And, um, you know, it's, it's wild because, uh, you know, having used the, the original version of the regrip and how, uh, you know, it, it, it's so um, inherently easy to do. And then to, uh, you know, be able to throw that on a bat. And, you know, I just think from my adult um, softball days as I play every now and again, you know, now, <laughs> Uh, any, any little advantage is, is, uh, is great, you know, and, and, um, I, you know, what I was just, um, so, uh, in, you know, enthralled with was, um, you know, the, the grip that you have for rakes and hammers and, you know, I think that's a, like five millimeters, right. But to have the, the regrip for baseball be so, um, so thin and yet seemingly so durable and able to, um, you know, uh, actually be used uh, as, as players are, you know, obviously both in games, but, you know, you get your majority of your swings in practice and it's going to withstand thousands of, of, um, of swings. I mean, absolutely. And, and that's where like, you know, our regular regrip is two millimeter thick. This one's one millimeter, but you know, this will last. Like I, I have so many people who are sending me pictures of, cause we're, we're like running a contest right now. So like the, the more times you tag bubble, you know, just like typical Instagram contest. Yep. And I'm getting all these pictures of people who are like, I put this like tape on my bat and it's falling off. Right. Or like there's, you know, it's hard to put tape on. So if you think about regripping, it's always been something that you to do it right. It's almost like anyone can regrip a, a, a golf club. In theory, we can all do it. Right but it's hard. There's a skill to it. It's like, so people are really good at it. That's why if you have a golf club, I don't play golf personally, but that's why most people who have golf clubs take them and they have, you know, them regret. Um, it's the same thing with like, you know, some people get really good and we see these pros who can grip things really qu quickly, but that doesn't mean, you know, they've been doing it now for, you know, 10, 20 years. Um, and again, I, there's still inherently an issue with the fact when, when you're moving your two hands around the, you know, the, the neck of the bat, you know, the, um, the, the handle, you're basically, you're moving your hands in opposite directions. So you have something that's turning in, in a, one way, and then your hands are moving back and forth. And that's why pine tar and all these other things to try to really get a good grasp on it. But the way our grip works, it's like, it's got triangle, like tactile on it. And I'm telling you, like, it's got this like absolute pull. It, it moves with your hand a little bit. And what we've heard, and again, it's like, you know, you never know like how, what, what happens with torque, right. Until you test it. But like, I've heard from, you know, professional players that it actually allows you to snap your wrist harder. So again, when I say harder, I'm sure I screwed that up, but you know, to get a little bit more torque, which could increase speed, which again, you know, it could be a better grip. Now, again, I'm not saying that this bat is or this back grip is great because it's going to make your swing better. Right. What I'm saying is, is that it's, you can put this on in between innings, right? I mean, it takes one minute, two minutes. It still takes a little bit of skill, right? Like I'm not going to give this to, you know, a 90 year old and say, Hey, regrip this bat, right? You, you still have to have some, you know, some strength and you need, you know, to know what you're doing and read the directions. But at the same time, I mean, this, this should be like easy for, you know, any kid, any adult, um, you know, who really wants to take the time to learn, they can learn this relatively quickly. So, 
Well, that I'm, I'm and I just think excited. to your point about you know uh, expectations, right? And, and it's consistency. One of the things that the reason that you go and regrip your clubs, the reason that you tape up your bat, is because you want that consistent feel. You want that you know whether that's that broken in feel or you want it you know tight. Uh, you know, you have this um, ability with the regrip from what I can see from what I've, you know, read in the comments and watched on the videos is, uh, you know, people really appreciate how, uh, you know, it's the same feel and you, you don't have that motion um, regardless of the torque in the swings. Well, yeah. And I think, I mean, one of the things that's nice too, is that like, so, so a, a lot of the tape will come in like a 0.5 millimeter or one millimeter or one and a half millimeter, like, cause some people want it more cushy, but what's nice is, is that you can put the regrip over the tape. Mm -hmm. So it still gives you that padded feel and the regrip only weighs like it's only an ounce and a half. Yeah. So, I mean, it really doesn't add a lot of weight to it. So like, between you and I, it's funny because, you know, the company has enough money if they wanted to just bring this to market, right? Again, we don't necessarily want to, you know, we're a retail-centric company, right? You know, we, we have a lot of our products are in retail. So, you know, our first, our first like, you know, our, our, our first expectation of our first, you know, plan was to go through retail. But that's why I think something like a Kickstarter, you know, where everybody can get it, they get their hands on it. And if they love it, then, you know, again, it's not going to be hard to go through retail and, and launch it, you know, a little bit, um, you know, a, a little bit entrepreneurially. So we'll see, you know, I mean, it's, uh, we, we take risks, right? So this is one of them <laughs> that uh, I'm basically putting my whole reputation on the line. Yeah, yeah so. no, no. I, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I don't think it would be on the line. I think um, your reputation speaks for itself, and it, and it's, uh, you know, it is interesting because one of the things about this particular podcast and the reason I put it together, you know, with the with the Edison Awards is is actually to learn more about the practical business applications for some of these, you know, innovations. So, you know, you, you've been a part of the, the competition um, a couple of times with, with um, different projects, one with um, regrip and then fire over, which we'll get to in, in a moment. But, um, you know, tell me uh, what are some of the things that, that you look for, you know, not just, I guess you could use any one of these three as an example, but as you come to market, you know, how do you go from, you know, development to commercialization? What, what are some of the steps that you look for and milestones that are important, uh, you know, for, for you and, and a development firm? No, and I think that's great. And, I, and again, like, I, I don't know if it's just where my background comes from, but like, I, I've typically not had deep pockets in anything that I've worked on. Right. Like, you know, I, I've never been one that, you know, where a company like Accenture would say, OK, why don't you become part of my research and development team and help us figure out what the next product to market would be. Right. What I do is, you know, I, I like to work from the ground up. I like to work with inventors. I like to understand what's, you know, I, I'm curious. Right. And I think that's where like the regrip, like I fell in love with the innovation in the simplicity of what the invention was, you know, with Fire Rover, the same thing. Right. I mean, this it's a very complex product and I work with the inventors and I, you know, it was one of my really good friends who, who actually had the idea for the company. And, you know, he did the first year of building prototypes. And then I got on involved, right? And I think, again, when I get involved, I think it, it's the next level, right? I mean, you have the inventor who creates that product. And then I kind of look for products, number one, that I think are going to make it because nobody wants to waste their time. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to say I refuse to fail. I mean, I like to, I like to think that I refuse to fail. Of course I fail, but 
at the same time, it's always going to be a calculated risk on the projects that I want to work on. Right. Um, and then there's the surprises, right? Like you work on a passion project like Cohatch that actually, you know, now has a mind of its own and a life of its a kind of life of itself. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I really, I think I'm always looking for innovation. I'm looking for things that excite me. And then, you know, from my perspective, when I get involved, it's, okay, what's the best way and channels to start to drive awareness? And then from that perspective, it's, okay, now we get awareness, let's prove the product works, and then let's try to go out and actually get real sales. You get real sales, it turns into a real business. If there's not real sales, I mean, there's some great, great, great ideas out there. Um, and there's a lot of very naive inventors. And I, I say that with the most respect, right? Inventors should be naive. They should stay naive. They should believe that the world's simple and that they can like create a product because what's made the U S and what's made, you know, the, the American way it's our innovation, right? So it's looking at a problem and trying to find something new, right? Which is why I love the innovate, you know, the, the Edison awards, because when you go there, there's all these different products of people who've created something or a different mousetrap or something. And like, that's huge. Now, bringing it to market's different. And, you know, sometimes I feel like I crush inventors dreams when I'm like, create your product, get your patent, be done. Then bring someone in like myself or a group that, you know, license it to a company that has the money and the deep pockets that can really bring it to market. Because again, as we all know with the eternal combustion engine, right? Like it's not the most efficient product that's out there. You know, my great grandfather used to say it was the biggest farce that was sold to all of us as Americans, right? But at the end of the day, like that product made it because of the deep pockets. Not, you know, there's. I mean, we would have had electric cars 50 years ago if it was if it was for you know what the the best and most innovative products are, right? So there's always the reality of business, and I think that's you know that's kind of the, the hard part for people to understand, you know. So, you know, one of the things that I've always admired about how, you know, you work on, on projects is really how you are able to take these different things and, and create a story, um, which, you know, ends up becoming a lot to do with your marketing. What are you, you know, I, and I know, um, you know, some, some of the ways in which you, you've gone about this, but, you know, if you could share a little bit about how you go about building communities, uh, you know, that, you know, for whether it be Cohatch and its actual communities where, you know, you're investing in, but then, you know, with Regrip, um, you have these niches within, uh, you know, users, right. And then Fire Rover, you know, now have, this is more of a business to business type of, of sale where, uh, you know, now all of a sudden you're not just keeping, um, you know, product safe, but you're actually keeping property and, and lives safe, uh, you know, so how do you, how do you go about articulating that story from the inventor and creating, a, creating something that is going to then, you know, drive sales? Well, so, uh, you know, I think, I mean, probably like, let's talk about Fire Rover, right? Because I think number one, I mean, that's the one that I've always, you know, I don't want to say the most surprised, but like when, 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 when I applied for the Edison award for Fire Rover, like I, I didn't think that we were going to win. We were going up against IBM and I think Raymond Corp and there were a couple others. And I think you remember this, right? Yeah. I had won a bronze with regrip. I mean, you know, and 
I, I think I literally walked out of the room when they awarded it because I didn't think that we, I thought we'd get another bronze. And again, I'm like, you know, the ultimate competitor, right? I mean, you know, even if I'm, I racing remember, my I remember re- being in New York, I was standing up. We were, I was actually towards the door and the stage was, was opposite. And I don't, you were st- sitting somewhere in the middle of the back or something. And um, I just, I just remember you yelling you're what six two six three standing up six, uh, six, six five but that's okay six, all right, whatever. <laughs> so, uh, sta- standing up yelling and then walking out of the room and i just like that was really weird was that was the regroup one right no no that was that was, was, was no, oh that was one oh good 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 that was that's fire good. rover Sorry. that was fire yeah. rover no this is i was good, excited yeah this is when you were excited um yeah, I think I left and called my wife. So, yeah. So the one thing I, I will say is this, right? Like, like I don't ever concoct a story, right? And I hate to use the word story as like, hey, you know, like I brought Fire Rover and convinced the waste and recycling industry that there was a problem and that allowed us to sell, right? It, it comes from a more pure place than that. Like the first time that I, I, I saw Fire Rover, I was like, oh my God, like basically, you know, and I'll explain it for anyone who doesn't understand what Fire Rover is, but basically we have the patent on utilizing a top grade thermal camera and we use it in like really high hazard areas. So, you know, places like um, waste, recycling, hazard materials, rubber feedstock, you know, it's operational facilities. And the difference between the Fire Rover and a sprinkler system is that a sprinkler system, which is one of the greatest inventions ever, it saved more lives than, I mean, I think sprinkler systems have saved more lives than probably almost any invention out there in the last hundred years, but they work really well for like office spaces and for homes and apartments. But where, where they have issues are in these industrial facilities where there's really a big open box and you have 40 foot ceilings. And, and most of the time, half of the uh, dock doors are open to the elements. And the problem is, is that, you know, when you're dealing in a, a manufacturing operation like that, you can't have the the um, you can't have the sprinkler heads you know ten feet off the ground where they need to be right. They're sitting forty feet above the ground, and so the real issue is this: is that if you're looking to solve a problem, or if you're looking to identify a problem when there's a radiant temperature of 180 degrees, when there's wind blowing in from outside, and when it has to get 30 to 40 feet high, that's it's an issue because by the time there's a fire you literally like the sprinkler system will go off sprinkler systems were never made for initial like extinguishment and they were never made for final extinguishment. Mm -hmm. So basically the idea is we use a thermal camera. I'm pinpointing heat. So if there's a fire on the ground, right? Think that 40 foot ceiling. If I have a fire on the ground, I can see how hot that, that one pixel is. And so that's a direct heat versus radiant. So I can catch these fires so much sooner. And then we have a fire rover box that's set up, which is a 20 by eight by eight container. It holds a thousand gallon tank, it's heated and it's cooled. And basically the idea is, is that we custom plumb, if you look in the ceiling, two cameras and one nozzle, and we can shoot a hazard about 140 feet by 280 feet. And so again, the idea is when we see a fire, it goes back to our central station. We have human beings who are looking at it, they're verifying it, so unlike you know, automated detection, which all the inventors are going towards, how do I automate fire prevention or fire detection? But I think you need to have that human, right? So what Fire Rover does is they look at it, they verify it, because in these operations, you have a ton of false alarms, right? You have a ton of 
forklifts, they're active, you know, things are constantly happening and, and providing heat triggers. And when we see it, we verify it. And then our agent will have a joystick at their desk and literally they're charging the unit that's already installed on site and they're spraying an environmentally friendly cooling agent onto the fire, like from a remote safe location. So like this thing, when we, when I first saw it, I'm like, I didn't know if it would work, honestly, like none of us did. I mean, including right. the inventors, right? I mean, we believed in it, but you know, we, we hadn't proven it yet. Mm -hmm. So I'll tell you a, a quick story. So like the first time that I was selling this, I went to a waste and recycling. It was a paper and plastics convention. And I meet who turned out to be one of my biggest customers. And uh, I meet this guy, his name's Brent Shows. And I said, I, I showed him our system, kind of explained it the way that I just explained it to you. And again, we had one location at the time, which was a pilot. And uh, I said, what do you think of it? And he goes, I love it. It's great. He goes, why do I need it? And I'm like, because you have fires. And I knew he had fires because, you know, I'm a sales guy, right? When I get involved in something, I'm looking, what's the market? You know, where's the opportunity? And I'm seeing, like I put in on Google, like fires, waste recycling facilities, because I thought I was seeing a lot of them. And I knew he, like, his company personally had had like three major fires. It was a huge issue for them. They had lost like 3% of the revenue. They're a billion dollar company. So I, I'm, he's like, why do I need it? And I go, because you have fires. And he's like, well, do I? I'm like, don't you? He's like, well, do my competitors? And I was like, I don't know. You know what I mean? So literally, I have a law degree. I know how to research. I go back and I literally look for how many fires and waste and recycling facilities have they had over the last 20 years? I literally thought I was going to like put it in and there was going to be a graph that just hits me and I'm done. Nothing. Literally nothing. So I started to, to, to like look at these every day and I started reporting them and then I started to do an annual report because I was trying to define what the problem was. And it turns out we've had fires for 50, 60 years. You know, I mean, when you're inherently like you drop your trash into a, a, a trash can, yeah. right? Like it's getting picked up, it's being brought to a transfer station and then that transfer station is putting everything together and they're bringing it to a landfill or it gets brought to a material recycling facility where they take it and they say, okay, I'll, I'll take your cardboard out. I'm going to take your paper, your plastics and all these different pieces and they break it up. Well, inherently you have like propane tanks, gas tanks, um, you know, like um, embers from, you know, a lot of people will have like barbecue embers or pool chemicals. I mean, people call it like effort recycling because at the end of the day, it's a magic box, I call it, right? You take and drop anything in your curbside and it goes away, right? right. Well, the problem is, is that that stuff's causing fires and no one knows. Right. So anyways, long story short, I started seeing this. And then the big issue was we've been having these fires for like 50 years. And then all of a sudden, all these lithium ion batteries are now getting more and more prevalent. So there are trillions of lithium ion batteries inside every single one of your devices. Your Apple earbuds, they literally have three lithium ion batteries in them. So people think that you can recycle a pair of Apple earbuds. They drop them into the recycling bin. Well, the recycling bin is only for like newspapers, which we don't see a lot, but like Amazon boxes and freaking like, it's only for like two types of paper and certain plastics, right? right? You can't like, people like have a bowling ball. They're like, oh, someone will want this. I'll just recycle it. And they drop it in there. You know what I mean? Again, now you have a bowling ball that's sitting there, right? So I mean, all these fires were starting and they really started taking a spike in 18. So again, when, when you say like, 
did you develop the story? The answer is, yeah, I developed the story, but the story developed itself, right? And I needed the industry to really look at themselves in the mirror because what, what happened was a lot of people were blaming me for sharing all these fires. But what really was happening is, is that in 2018, and I've seen the data now from the insurance, like the claims, that was shared. And what was happening is that the actuarials from the insurance companies, when they see a, a freaking like, you know, when they saw the amount of claims that were happening and it was increased from shredder fires and from, you know, lithium ion battery claims, well, they got scared because again, the risk profile that they had been, you know, they had been insuring for years had actually, they didn't understand the real risk they were in. So in 18, the mark, you know, the whole industry, I'm really proud of the industry. They, they've like taken a hundred percent turn and that doesn't mean they bought fire rovers, even though like fast forward. Now we have 150 locations last 12 months. We haven't had one major fire incident. Like we've, we had two fires where our, where our unit was burnt, but one, one of them, the fire started from behind it because again, I'm not always doing an entire facility. So if we pick a hazard area and there's a fire behind the hazard area, then of course my box is going to get burnt before it has a chance to do anything. And then we had one where, you know, we need direct line of sight. And, you know, we, we just had a customer that, 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 um, that so you like have to be judicious about, stuff. yeah, yeah. I mean, you, there's a component to, you know, making sure that there's, um, some uh, pragmatism to picking the location too then. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, good operators have less fires, bad operators have more fires, right? But you still have to be a good operator, right? That doesn't, and again, you have to focus on the fire prevention. You know, and that's, I mean, all those things from a prevention perspective and all those things from a professional response perspective, those have to be buttoned up, right? Like those relax in the industry and now they've, they've really tightened up. And then what we do is we focus on the initial 10 minutes of a fire. My goal is to catch it as early in the process as possible. And once we do, you know, and, and if I can catch it before there's a flame or I can call the fire department when I see smoke, that gets them on scene. You know, so we've only had like less than 10 where we didn't have the fire out before the fire professionals arrived on scene. We had one. And again, if you go to the fire over YouTube page, like, you know, fortunately my customers are, you know, they allow us to share these or most of them allow us to share these as a learning experience. Because again, we're now seeing, I mean, when you had a fire forensics operator that would walk into a major massive, you know, MRF that went down. I mean, they had no way to tell that it was caused by a lithium ion battery and a a Mac computer that was accidentally thrown in a recycling bin. You know, now we can actually, we can, we can tell, you know? So, you know, we put out, we had a rubber feedstock pile. We put out in four and a half minutes. It was a 3000 degree fire. We had it out in four and a half minutes. Fire department arrived on scene four minutes later and they were still on scene within 10 minutes. So, I mean, it's, there's been some amazing results with this. So again, I think, you know, the idea is like, the story writes itself, you know, I, I'm, I, I personally like, you know, I, I'm passionate about it, but at the same time, like, you know, me, I'm passionate about a lot of stuff. Um, but with that being said, like we're putting fires out, we're saving lives. I mean, last year there were over 50 injuries to fire department or fire professionals when they would come. A lot of the times it wasn't the employees that would get hurt in these fires, right? It was the, um, it was the, the firefighters, right? They come on scene and it's 90 degrees, 95 degrees outside. They're wearing all their equipment. And then, you know, it's, it's sun's beating down on them and they're fighting a fire that didn't necessarily need to happen. And that's where I'm like, okay, 
you know, we have eight guys who are fighting for a half hour. They go in and they take a cold shower and they, t- they rest for 45 minutes and they go back and fight for another half hour and they keep doing it. So, you know, anyways, I mean, it's been, uh, it's been great. I mean, you know, we, uh, we've actually developed a couple new solutions. So we got our first variants where the fire Rover was allowed in lieu of a sprinkler system and a, a material recycling facility. So it's literally a hundred percent like fire Rover in lieu of a sprinkler system. And what we did was on that one, we, uh, we put manifolds on, so we'll shoot for eight to 12 minutes, our environmental friendly cooling foam. And then the fire department, they, they've been told with lithium ion battery fires that they shouldn't, they should take a defensive posture when they fight these fires. So, you know, they're not allowed to go in. So anyways, long story short, they can hook up to a manifold from the outside and we can shoot for 50 minutes. We have backups. So, you know, we basically met the performance-based application for, um, you know, for a sprinkler system. So, you know, I think the, the, um, I think the applications are limitless on this one, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm hoping that we, you know, really build it going forward. That is incredible. So what's next for you, Ryan? Um, you know, I, I, I believe my life is always in, in four year periods, right. You know, college four years, high school, four years, you know, I got a law degree in MBA four years, right. Like, so, um, right now I'm in 15, I made the conscious decision to, you know, work on just things that I had a, a piece of, right. As opposed to working for people. Um, you know, so I think right now, I mean, I'm going to, I'll ride these, these three out. I mean, obviously I help other customers and I do, I'm involved in a lot of other businesses. Um, I'm also pretty passionate about like, what can you do for the world, which is a lot of the cohatch piece of it. Um, you know, we have 50 nonprofits from a scholarship perspective that we do, like we help nonprofits become profitable, right? Where, you know, the goal for them is to run themselves just like a business, um, and, you know, typically the best nonprofits that we've seen, we've helped them have a for-profit side and then a nonprofit side, um, which, you know, again, like these are things that, you know, you, I, I focus on in my spare time. I'd like to make that my full time, you know, and, and helping these guys really, you know, make some, make a difference, you know, yeah. so. Well, cool. Well, we'll see. I mean, I'm not that old yet, right? But close <laughs> enough. Dude, hey, it's great talking to you. I'm glad we could catch up. Um, thanks for uh, taking the time to uh, to join this project. I, I really appreciate it. And I'm certainly looking forward to, um, you know, having you guys participate here, maybe with the, the baseball grip. No, absolutely. And I, I would love to, obviously, I support what you guys are doing. I think it's amazing. And, uh, you know, you do a good job. I know Frank does a great job. So I, I think Frank's son actually had one of the original prototype ba- uh, baseball back grips that he has on his, his um, that, he, that he had on his bat, I believe. But, you know, it's, uh, well, it's I'll been a to, while. I'll have to verify that and put it out there for you. Well, I, I'll, I'll get him some new ones. So okay. no problem. <laughs> good deal. All right, man. Well, I appreciate it. Have a good afternoon, man. All right. Hey, thanks for joining me. Appreciate it. You have been listening to the Inspiring Minds podcast presented by the Edison Awards. On behalf of our guest today and host, Justin Starbird, thank you for listening. Please share your feedback on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Edison Awards. If you have a great guest idea or want to share your inspiring story, please email Justin at justin at edisonawards.com for consideration. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Minds podcast.